From the earliest days in professional sports, the main attraction for many has been the new, young, and up-and-coming future star. This holds true for NHL franchises as well. A young player can invigorate a fan base and promote ticket sales. It can attract other players to join your franchise as well. No more current example of this was the free agent signing of Milan Lucic with the Edmonton Oilers, who when asked why he signed in Edmonton, simply replied, 97, in reference to Conor McDavid. The early days in the NHL were very much the wild west of NHL player selection. Players would be scouted early on in North America and would sign C-form contracts, essentially committing themselves to a franchise while building up the prospect base. This gave a clear advantage to teams who were dedicated to finding players and those with larger scouting networks. In 1963, the NHL attempted to standardize this process with the NHL Amateur Draft. For a while, few important players came out of this draft. Part of this was the presence of C-form players, as many of the forms signed prior to the draft were still considered valid, so it would take some time for them to phase out. At the same time, the World Hockey Association arrived on the scene and began drafting from the same pool of prospects. The WHA gave up their draft after five years, and the league folded within nine. The NHL draft moved from amateur to an entry draft to allow players who had played professionally prior to being drafted to enter the league. Since then, entry to the NHL has for the most part been managed through this selection of players. The draft allocates player selection picks to teams in the league based off of the prior year's final standings as well as a draft lottery for the top picks. And since the early days of having these picks, it was clear that the possibility of drafting a player could be used as a form of currency in league trades. Every year, multiple picks from the second to the seventh round of the draft are moved freely among the league. However, the first round pick holds a special place in the heart of hockey fans and management. While there are exceptions, the best players in the league are often picked with these first round picks and the best of those with the first overall pick. Since the 1963 inception of the draft, the first overall pick has been traded nine times as a pick, while many other times after the pick has been used to select a player. Of those nine trades, three of the first overall draft picks were traded the day of the NHL entry draft, and all happened within five years of each other. The 1999, 2002, and 2003 NHL entry drafts saw the first overall pick traded the day of the draft in a series of moves that defined the future of three different franchises. Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and I would trade next year's fourth round pick and a conditional seventh round pick just for a 2014 playoff. And this is Storytime Hockey. Discussing a draft or draft history should not begin anywhere else than the 2003 NHL Entry Draft. It is widely regarded as the strongest draft in modern NHL history, and it is not hard to see why. Sorting the group by points, the list reads as a collection of 2000s All-Stars. Eric Stahl, Ryan Getzlaff, Patrice Bergeron, Corey Perry, Joel Pavelski, Zach Parise, Thomas Vanek, Jeff Carter, Brent Burns, and Dustin Brown round out the top 10. Further down the list are players such as Shea Weber, Ryan Suter, Brent Seabrook, Mike Richards, and Dustin Bufflin. On top of these positional players, five noteworthy goalies were drafted. Brian Elliott, Corey Crawford, Yaroslav Halak, Jimmy Howard, and first overall pick Marc-Andre Fleury. The top three prospects for the draft were Nathan Horton, Fleury, and Stahl. And the top three picks were held in order by Florida, Carolina, and Pittsburgh. 
Now, of course, no trade occurs in a vacuum. It represents the players that already exist in a franchise as well as the atmosphere of the league as a whole. And to fully understand the events of the 2003 NHL entry draft, we need to consider the draft that occurred four years earlier, when the New York Islanders picked first overall. The Islanders selected goalie Rick DiPietro from Boston University. He was only the second goalie ever selected in the draft first overall, the first being Michael Plass by the Montreal Canadiens in 1968. Plass played 299 games in the NHL, only winning 92 and finishing with a career GAA of 3.79. As a side note, Plass may not have had the most exemplary NHL career, but it is believed that he was the first professional goaltender to shoot and score with Kansas City of the Central Hockey League in 1972. The league very much over the years avoided spending high draft picks on goaltenders as the position has a strange development curve and it is often unclear what type of prospect you will get. However, DiPietro, at least to Islanders GM Mike Milbury, seemed like the real deal. However, now he had too many goalies in his pipeline and Milbury had to move a goaltending contract. He traded forward Ole Jokinen and prospect Roberto Luongo to Florida for Mark Parrish and Ole Kavasha. Luongo developed into a strong starting goalie and in 2002-2003 had played 65 games for the Panthers. It was clear that they did not need a goaltender going into this draft and despite Marc-Andre Fleury being available, they would not be selecting him. The Carolina Hurricanes made it very clear that they had fallen in love with the development possibilities presented by Peterborough Pete's center Eric Stahl, who was widely regarded as a franchise player. With no need for a goaltender and Carolina's clear pursuit of Stahl, the Panthers were pleased to be left with their focus on Oshawa General Nathan Horton. At the same time, it is important to do a quick analysis of the state of the franchise based in Pittsburgh. The Penguins had only once to this point picked in the first overall slot of the draft, taking Mario Lemieux in 1984, a draft pick that yielded two Stanley Cups and a franchise icon. Leading up to the draft, the Penguins were struggling. Due to budget issues, they had been forced to shed salary. Trading Lemieux's running mate Yarmer Yager to the Capitals and stick-handling master Alex Kovalev to the New York Rangers. They had made multiple unsuccessful attempts to secure funding for a new arena, and Lemieux actually became a part owner of the franchise by deferring salary owed to him in exchange for partial ownership. The franchise was in disarray and in desperate need to rebuild. Penguins GM Craig Patrick decided that the 2003 draft would be an ideal time to kick off the rebuild, and there was no better place to start with than in goal. Florida General Manager Rick Dudley traded the first overall pick along with a third round pick in exchange to the Penguins for the third overall pick, as well as a second round pick in the same draft, and forward Michael Samuelson. It was important to the Panthers that they did hold on to a high draft position. Penguins GM Patrick noted that after the draft, we were fortunate to be in the third position because Florida wanted to make sure they got a good pick out of the draft. At the same time, while trading down, Dudley was able to draft the player that his organization had their eyes set on. It is hard to believe that in one of the deepest drafts in NHL history, the team that held the first overall draft pick would trade down and still get the player that they wanted. But this undercuts something that is integral to the story of the draft. Every team got what they needed. The Penguins got a goalie of the future in their eyes, while also looking ahead for future drafts. Flory would not be able to contribute at the NHL level immediately, which opened up the opportunity for the franchise to draft high again the next year, netting them Evgeny Malkin. The Hurricane 
Canes were set on Eric Stahl, buoyed by their future goaltending hope of Cam Ward, who was selected in 2002. The Panthers were able to leverage everybody's desire for the player that they wanted, not necessarily the best player available, to gather assets while at the same time still selecting the player they wanted in Nathan Horton. Of course, in the darkest timeline, none of this really matters if Alex Ovechkin was born 48 hours earlier, he missed the cutoff for the 2003 NHL draft by being born on September 17, 1985, two days after the September 15th deadline. And since we are discussing such a significant draft pick, you would think that years would go by in between first overall draft picks being traded on draft day. But it was only one year earlier that the first overall pick was moved, and again, this featured many of the same managers. The 2002 NHL entry draft was held in Toronto, and yet again, who the front runner was to be selected was a little unclear. The draft was seen as a bit weaker than others, and after the first few picks, the quality of players dropped off significantly. The Columbus Blue Jackets had played two years in the league, and in their first two seasons had selected Rusty Klesla and Pascal Leclerc with their first two first round picks. They had not yet experienced any success and were in desperate need of a franchise-defining talent. The Blue Jackets were picking third overall, and they wanted to move up to accomplish just that, in order to select London Knight Rick Nash. General Manager Doug McLean made no secrets that he was their first pick and that they had him at the number one spot all year. For GM McLean, the fear was that they would be sitting at the third overall pick after Nash had gone and would likely select Yoni Pitkinen, a player that he did not really have any significant interest in. They already had Pascal Leclerc in net, so number one goaltending prospect Kerry Lettinen was not needed by their organization. And if they didn't pick first overall, they would likely miss out on Rick Nash, as well as smooth skating Jay Bomeister. Again this year, the Panthers were blessed with holding the first overall pick, and as if to establish a pattern, had their eyes on a different player than who was picked first overall. Jay Bomeister had played his junior hockey with the Medicine Hat Tigers. He was widely regarded as the best option in the draft, and the Panthers in discussions with the Blue Jackets knew that they could leverage this situation in their favor. Again, however, to get their man, Florida had to find a way to protect him from the second overall selection, at this time held by the Atlanta Thrashers. The 2001-2002 Atlanta Thrashers had finished the season with 19 wins and were at the bottom of the league in goals against. Five goaltenders had played for them that season, with 60 starts coming from Milan Hlinka and contributions from Frederick Kasivi, Passy Nermanen, Damian Rhodes, and Norm Maracle. It was clear that the new organization, having only joined the league in 1999, was in desperate need of goaltending depth. Luckily for them, Kerry Lettinen had just come off of a brilliant season in the Finnish Elite League and had established himself as a top prospect with a 9.43 save percentage at the World Junior Tournament where he was named the best goaltender. Lettinen was the highest ranked European goaltender ever, far surpassing the previous 21st overall. And on the day of the draft, after discussions in the days leading up to it, nothing had happened until on the draft floor, right before the picks were about to be made, Gary Bettman announced that there had been a trade. Columbus had traded their first round, third overall pick, and the option to swap picks in the 2003 first round in exchange for the Panthers' first overall. Of course, as we have already discussed, since Florida won the lottery draft the next year, this condition was never exercised. With the draft being held in Toronto, 
it was considered a bombshell when Doug McClain announced that Rick Nash would be taken first overall. Not only was Nash essentially a hometown kid growing up in Brampton, just outside of Toronto, but on everyone else's draft boards, Jay Bomeister was ranked number one. To emphasize the shock that the pick created in the Air Canada Centre, today's Scotiabank Arena, you can easily find video online of the draft announcement. After McLean announces the pick of Nash first overall, the video pans to Nash celebrating with his family for a shorter than expected time, before it cut to Jay Bomeister sitting in the stands. The Panthers needed to solidify their gamble and sent a third round pick previously acquired in the Alex Ald trade to Vancouver as well as a fourth round pick in 2003 previously acquired from the Rangers in their Pavel Bure trade to the Atlanta Thrashers. The Atlanta Thrashers agreed to pick Kerry Lettinen with the second pick. It is also important to note here that the general manager of the Panthers at this time was Rick Dudley. Dudley would become the only GM to trade first overall picks in back-to-back -back years. Interestingly enough, he would actually end up being the general manager of the Atlanta Thrashers in 2010 and would trade Kerry Lettinen to the Dallas Stars, at which point he would be responsible for a transaction involving all three of the first overall picks from the 2002 NHL entry draft. In the end, Columbus got the player that they were after, Atlanta got the goaltending depth that they desperately needed, and the Panthers ended up selecting the player that they wanted. Considering that the Panthers actually had to pay to trade down, as they didn't gain anything out of moving from the first to the third pick, it might be surprising to review the confidence that Dudley had only the day prior to the draft. He told the South Florida Sun Sentinel that, I think I am asking for more than people think is fair, but maybe I'm doing that on purpose because I don't really want to trade the pick. Every general manager who owns a first round pick always keeps their cards close to their chest, but they're still relied upon to perform on draft days. Not being able to pull in a net positive outcome when trading away a first overall pick could cost you your job, and I don't think there's any better example of this to keep in mind as we move forward to the final example of the first overall draft pick being traded on draft day at the 1999 NHL Entry Draft in Boston. Looking back on the NHL Entry Draft in 1999, it is almost unanimously considered one of the worst drafts on record. An interesting tie-in with the first overall pick that was moved in the 2003 draft, which was widely considered the strongest. However, much of that is looking back and seeing the players that succeeded out of the draft. At the time, however, many saw the players as good, serviceable NHL players. And perhaps this is the issue, that high draft picks are expected to be champions, leaders, Olympians, and record breakers, not serviceable NHLers, or perhaps flops. Patrick Stefan was widely seen as the number one overall pick and had already played a year professionally in the International Hockey League with the Long Beach Ice Dogs. Chris Beach, who was ranked fifth in the draft, was seen as a serviceable future NHL player, but not an NHL star. There was also Pavel Brendel, who had won the WHL Player of the Year award, but there were concerns about his ceiling as an NHL player. The most important players at the top of this draft, in hindsight, were the twins Henrik and Daniel Sedin. The brothers had played in Modo of the Swedish Hockey League and for Sweden at the World Junior and World Championships. They had made it clear that it was their desire to be drafted together, and this message came straight from player agent Mike Barnett. If you recall from our episode on Wayne Gretzky, Barnett was Gretzky's agent and at this point was still widely respected around the league. If the twins weren't drafted together, you as an organization ran the risk of their commitment to your franchise. Brian Burke was the general manager of the Vancouver Canucks at the time, and after the World Junior Championships in Winnipeg that year, 
He returned to Vancouver and reported to his scouting staff that he was going to be trading the team's first round pick. After seeing the possible selection for the draft available to him, there was not enough value in his eyes for the first round pick. He believed that the franchise would be better served trading the pick away for other assets. This was the belief of many of the teams in the league, as a quick scan of the first round reveals that 11 of the 28 first round picks ended up being traded in a series of 15 trades. However, Swedish scout Tomas Grandin continued to watch the Sedin brothers play in Modo and fought for Burke to watch them one more time at the World Hockey Championships. Sweden finished third in the tournament, and Burke returned from the championships with a new goal, to acquire both of the twins. He made no secret that he believed that they would be both good NHL players, but he held no idea of the careers that they would actually go on to establish. And as for the Canucks, their roster rebuild was well on the way. Pavel Bure had been moved to the Panthers in a package that included goaltender Kevin Weeks, Ed Jovanovski, and a 2000 first round pick. In a strange twist, Weeks would be again traded from the Canucks to Tampa Bay for another first round pick in 2000, making him involved in trades for both the 5th and the 23rd overall picks in that draft. And then in perhaps one of the most widely discussed trades of Canucks history, Captain Trevor Linden was traded for Brian McCabe and Todd Bertuzzi to the New York Islanders. All of this was leading up to the week prior to the draft on June 26, 1999. The top of the draft board was set, with Tampa Bay selecting first overall, Atlanta, the new expansion franchise second, Vancouver third, and Chicago fourth. To gain a second pick in the top of the draft, Burke reluctantly traded Brian McCabe to Chicago, along with a first round pick in either 2000 or 2001, for their fourth overall pick, now giving the Canucks the back-to-back -back picks that they required, but likely too low to select both of the Sedin twins at third and fourth. This trade was made on the Sunday before the draft, but not announced so that Burke could continue to try and move higher in the draft. In very Burkean fashion, the night before the draft he was negotiating with the general manager of the Tampa Bay Lightning for their first overall draft pick. Outside of using the first overall pick as currency, the other major connection here is Rick Dudley, who had been the general manager of the Florida Panthers in 2002 and in 2003, but at this point in 1999 was the newly minted general manager of the Tampa Bay Lightning. Perhaps it was his affinity for big news making at the draft, or perhaps the need to develop interest in small market teams, but Dudley sure didn't know how to make noise at a draft. However, Burke recalls that the night before the draft, conversations had broken down and going into the day of the draft with the third and fourth overall pick, he was considering that he was bound to lose his job due to his inability to pull off the trades required and weakening the franchise in the process. However, the morning of the draft, Rick Dudley walked up to Burke and told him that he would accept his deal. Tampa Bay would receive two third round picks and would swap first round picks with the Canucks. Tampa Bay would choose fourth with the pick that had originally belonged to Chicago. This left the draft board as Vancouver picking first, Atlanta second, Vancouver third, and Tampa fourth. As it turned out, Dudley had not only been trying to drive the price up of his first overall pick, but he had in fact traded the fourth overall pick in an agreement even before having acquired it to the New York Rangers in exchange for Dan Cloutier, Nicholas Sundstrom, and a first and a third in 2000, a slick piece of deal making from Dudley. Burke makes no secret now that the team had in fact been trying to gain Atlanta's pick as well, 
leaving them with the first three picks in the draft, so that they could pick Stefan and the Sedin twins. However, as an expansion franchise, Atlanta understandably wanted to hold on to one of the picks. But now with Atlanta being the only team between the two picks, Burke needed to confirm that he could select both twins. He traded down to the Atlanta pick second overall, and included a third round pick in exchange for Atlanta's promise to select Stefan first overall. Burke did have one piece of leverage though. Despite aggressive expansion in the NHL, no expansion franchise had ever selected first overall due to the lottery system that was put in place for the top draft picks. Atlanta, an unusual hockey market that the league was eager to expand into, had an opportunity to be a part of something special. The rest is history. Patrick Stefan was picked first overall by the Atlanta Thrashers and went on to have a decent NHL career that was derailed by injuries and concussions. He is perhaps most famously known for his 2007 miss of an empty Nat versus the Edmonton Oilers, which was immediately brought back down the ice by the team and tied the game on the Alice Hemsky goal. Daniel Sedin was selected second overall in the draft and Henrik third. A quick look through the first round picks shows that this was in fact an incredibly weak draft in the long term for the NHL. As the next five picks were Pavel Brendel, Tim Connolly, Brian Finley, Chris Beach, and Taylor Pyatt. Later in the draft, players such as Henrik Zetterberg, Vadim Verbata, and Martin Havlat were selected. Despite being a staple of the NHL summer, the draft is clearly a difficult process. Between the accuracy of scouting and the philosophies of drafting, it is no secret that it can be a hit or a miss exercise. However, it is clear that if you hold the first round pick the day of the draft, holding onto it and selecting a player is often the course of action that a franchise will take. Despite that, on these three occasions, 1999, 2002, and 2003, Franchises determined that it was worth moving the first overall pick in an effort to change the future of their franchises. Nash became the face of the Blue Jackets and a star for Canada internationally. Bomeister is loved across the league for his abilities as a smooth skater and a minute eater and would go on to have successful stints in both Calgary and St. Louis where he won the Stanley Cup. Marc-Andre Fleury is loved by all fans outside of his rival cities. The Sedin twins took the Canucks to a Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals, interestingly enough losing to the team representing the city that they were drafted in. Nathan Horton was the heart and soul player for the Panthers and the Bruins before injuries turned him into a Toronto salary cap loophole. Stefan had a good serviceable career, but never lived up to being a first overall pick. Stefan's career went about the same direction as the future of the franchise that picked him. In every scenario, I think it is clear that for better or worse, the direction that the teams took was heavily influenced by these draft day deals, and perhaps explains why the discussion over the format of the 2020 NHL entry draft is so hotly contested. The next section of the podcast will focus on players who you may or may not have forgotten about. With no real rhyme or reason to the selection of these players, this portion of the podcast will be dedicated to the players that score occasionally, get traded for a second round pick, and sometimes even win an award. This is Storytime Hockey, the players you forgot about. There were a variety of themes that appeared as we researched draft day trades for the first overall pick. Often, goaltending and goaltending depth in one of the organizations was a significant factor, as well as the idea of being dedicated to drafting one player, the so-called your guy. 
One person presented himself as a common denominator, a thread that connected all three draft day trades. The man was Richard Clarence Dudley, also known as Rick. While he may not have had the most successful playing career, he certainly has made a name for himself as a manager and perhaps may just be the most interesting man in the world. Dudley was born in Toronto, Ontario on January 31st, 1949. He played Junior B with the Dixie Beehives in Weston, Ontario, now a suburb in the northwest of Toronto. He also played Junior A with the St. Catharines Blackhawks in the 1968 and 1969 season when he recorded 15 points in 26 games and an additional 3 points in their playoff run that year. He played on the same team as Marcel Dion in St. Catharines, who dominated the league that year with 100 points in 48 games. Dudley would turn professional the next year with the Iowa Stars of the Central Hockey League and the following year split time between Cleveland of the American Hockey League and the Flint Generals in the International Hockey League. He joined the Buffalo Sabres organization the following season and would play with the Cincinnati Swords of the American Hockey League. He would record 29 points in 51 games and have his big breakout year in the 1972-73 season when he recorded 84 points in 64 games as the team finished first in the Western Conference and then defeat the Nova Scotia Voyageurs in the Calder Cup Finals that year. Dudley would move up to the Sabres NHL roster the following year and produce excellent numbers for the team. After his first year of adjusting to the NHL, he continued to develop as a player, and in his second year put up 70 points in 71 games in 1975. He would move to the Cincinnati Stingers of the World Hockey Association and would spend four of his next years with the organization as a top-line contributor. That was until the franchise traded him back to the Buffalo Sabres. He would complete his NHL career in 1980-1981 in a season where he split time between the Buffalo Sabres and the Winnipeg Jets, who claimed him on waivers just after the halfway point of the season. What makes Dudley such an interesting case study of players in the NHL is the way in which he developed into a hockey player. Dudley grew up playing hockey, football, and lacrosse, but it was lacrosse that he was at his best. When he was 17, a friend of his convinced him to try out for the Beehives Junior B team. Dudley at this point had never played anything more than a men's league type of game. In tryouts, Dudley retaliated to a slash from the team's captain in practice and fought the player, winning both the fight and the affections of the management, earning a spot on the Junior B squad. He was then called up for the rest of the season to protect Marcel Dion with St. Catharines. But since he fought every game, he quickly endeared himself to the fans and became a favorite. Eventually this led to a tryout with the Minnesota North Stars, but a knee injury would hold him back. When he did return to professional hockey, it was due to the interest and appreciation of lacrosse by Punch Imlach, then the coach of the Maple Leafs. As a fan of lacrosse, Imlach was convinced to allow Dudley to train with the Leafs, and this led to his return to hockey with Cincinnati. Dudley had grown up playing lacrosse and often discussed it as his preferred sport when he was younger. However, he had pursued hockey was able to experience a part of life that very few do, the life of a two-sport professional athlete. The National Lacrosse League, which is not related to its current iteration, lasted two seasons between 1974 and 1975. The main purpose of this league was an attempt by the NHL owners to keep their arenas full with paying fans throughout the summer months. Three of the six teams were bankrupt within the second year, however Dudley did get a chance to play professionally. 
Dudley was selected in a special entry draft held by the National Lacrosse League that allowed them to draft a professional athlete from another professional sport. This was a major risk for the franchise, as the team was operating on a meager budget and had to sign a contract with the Sabres that in the situation that Dudley was injured, the Rochester team would have to pay out the remainder of Dudley's NHL contract. Dudley would star with the Rochester Griffins and would record 81 goals and 51 assists across 28 games with the Griffins. He was widely considered a high-end lacrosse player and one of the best in Canada, and in his short time in the league, certainly proved these to be true. His team would go on to win the championship in their inaugural season in a 4-2 showdown versus the Philadelphia Wings. After his playing career, Dudley entered management. It was actually on the way home from his final game as a player in the American Hockey League with the Fredericton Express that an old friend named Dave Gusky had called him because he had just purchased a team in the Atlantic Coast Hockey League. The Carolina Thunderbirds, based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, had started the year with 3 wins and 24 losses. Dudley agreed to support his friend for two weeks, but shortly after that realized how much he enjoyed coaching and managing hockey. Since then, Dudley has held essentially every possible management job across a host of franchises in hockey. He was the coach and general manager of the ACHL with Carolina, and then moved to the International Hockey League as the head coach of the Flint Spirits. Then he moved to the New Haven Nighthawks, and then jumped to the NHL where he coached the Buffalo Sabres for two and a half years, and was replaced by John Muckler in 1992. He returned to the International Hockey League with the San Diego Gulls, the Phoenix Roadrunners, and Detroit Vipers, all where he acted as a head coach, although he did spend two of his four years as a dual coach and GM with Detroit, and the final two just as the GM between 1994 and 1998. Since then, he has returned full-time to the NHL, first as the general manager of the Ottawa Senators, where he then moved to Tampa Bay. Since then, he has also served in Florida, Chicago, Atlanta, Toronto, Montreal, and today at the age of 71, is the senior vice president of hockey operations in Carolina. His experience in hockey across the years makes him incredibly fascinating. Wearing the number 99 in Buffalo to looking like a potential Batman villain, Rick Dudley may hold the position as the most interesting man in hockey. Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, proud champion of two Stanley Asterisk Cups. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your listening platform and follow us on Twitter at Storytime Hockey. Please leave a review as every interaction that you have with us increases the odds that we will appear in a friend's suggested podcast list. So be a good neighbor and hit five stars. Thanks again for listening and we will talk to you again next episode. <laughs>